0: Welcome back to The Platform, the Station House audio series, where we take the show to you. I am back with Ron Bowman and Brad Jolliffe, uh, both railroaders. Ron is retired. Brad is still serving. Uh, both, how are those pension checks? Are you rolling in from uh, CP?
1: Yeah, now I get the old age pension, so yeah, it just gets better and better. If <laughs> you ever need
0: a hand spending all that pension money, Ron, I, you just, you got my number.
1: No, no, i I. I. I'm happily married. It doesn't last. <laughs> we're
0: we're back today. Uh, guys, last time we were together, we were talking about train orders and train order territory. And I told you that my head was swimming when I first delved down the rabbit hole uh, of train orders. I, st- I think I know a little bit and maybe just enough to make me dangerous. But you guys are the experts. Um, I want to get back on that subject. And some of the things that I was thinking about since we, we last talked... Uh, And for those who are just joining us, you can go back and listen to our first episode of the Station House Audio Series where we introduced this. We said a few things. We said that you could railroad in train orders. You could railroad with a timetable uh, and a watch and a rule book. One thing that I found interesting, and, and maybe Ron you could talk about this, is let's say that the timetable had a train. Let's use 904. 904 was called the Lord of the London. It was uh, the hottest train on the London Division. It was an eastbound train. But sometimes under train order territory, there would be more than one physical train that left Windsor, Ontario as numbered as 904. Can you explain to us what that why that would be and about sections and talk about maybe the flags and and that type of thing?
1: Yeah, so, so th- First thing to know is that we operated it back then under a different rule book. We used the Uniform Code of Operating Rules and the rule book changed significantly uh, once they got away from train orders. But to, you, to, to focus on that example, um, if they had two trains to run out of Windsor and they were, wanted to a lot of times keep them together, uh, fairly close together, um, the, uh, this, they, the first one would be run as first 904. And the train order that you would get with that would be, uh, engines, whatever, uh, run as display signals and run as first 904. So that would mean that you would put green flags up, green lights. Um, and another, the other train behind would be run as second 904. If there were only going to be the two, uh, sections of that train, the second guy would not be displaying any signals. So, uh, Opposing trains that were meeting that had the timetable the time of 904, usually they would get something on first and second 904. But if they didn't, they would get first 904, uh, meet him at, let's say, meet him at Camp Bridge. If you were an extra train, you automatically went in the siding because he was superior to you by his class. So um, if you went in that siding and, and you saw that he had green flags, you wouldn't go anywhere until you saw another section. Um, and I know that uh, Brad and I were discussing this and he's got the Uniform Code of Operating Rules with him today and the superiority of trains is there. And I think if he reads that, perhaps that'll give uh, an idea of uh, how this is sort of uh, set up.
2: Yeah, so under the superi- superiority of trains and the Uniform Code of Operating Rules, uh, it says a train is superior to another train by right class Or direction Mm -hmm. and right is conferred by train order class and direction by timetable and right is superior to class or direction and for single track direction is superior as between trains of the same class so if you had two uh, uh, second-class trains uh, on the London division the eastbound Would be superior by direction, correct, Ron?
1: Correct. So if they put a meet out 903 meet 904 uh, at Coakley, then the inferior train in the inferior direction would be the one to take the siding.
2: So 903 would take the siding, correct? In that case. Now there
1: is, if you look at the way the the way the description that Brad just read, the dispatcher could could put a train or out saying. Uh, 9.04 meet 9.03 at Coakley, 9.04 take siding at Coakley. And that uh, that type of thing has happened to me before. Uh, most notably, I remember putting, him putting, we were on an extra train, and they put 9.04 in the siding because they knew I was trying to get home because my wife was having a baby at the time. This was back in 1981, so anything was possible. The That would be the uh, train orders giving the authority to... Uh, one train that would typically be inferior to the other train, but in, this, in that particular example.
0: So as I understand it, if you had uh, first, second and third 904 leaving Windsor, that does not necessarily mean that all three of those physical trains were the proper 904 traffic. They were simply a placeholder in the timetable to give a train authority to get over the road is that correct yeah so tra- just so just because there were three sections of a train does not mean that all three of them were all 904s traffic
1: oh no one could be an engine van it could be an auto part special it could be anything but they uh, the 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 uh, the schedule is your right to be out there so if you don't have a schedule um, you you have extra. to be, run extra and if you don't have either of those things you better be in yard limits or else not on the main track okay so
0: that explains sections to us and it was every section but the last one would carry green flag by day uh light class light by green green light by night or in climate weather poor visibility correct okay the white flags that we saw on trains from that era were for extra trains and an extra train is any train that's outside of
1: the schedule extra trains and work extras which is another whole thing yeah
0: okay all right so that covers that so so here's a question the london division is primarily single track from windsor to guelph junction so let's use that section of track for for an example you've got an eastbound and a westbound that are going to meet somewhere along the line and in single track how was it worked out where that meet would take place And was it the same every day did it change all the time was there a usual how did that Were how did East meet West in with train orders
1: well first off they might put a meet out on the train they might give you a train order that said meet so-and-so meet so-and-so at such a location but it might be that they give you time on the superior train he waits here until a certain time waits here that would be time beyond what's in his timetable okay so if he was do out of a station at 1,400, they might say wait at that station until 1,500 or 1,630 or anything up to 12 hours, in fact. So was the dispatcher,
0: was it the dispatcher that was, you know, the chess master making this happen?
1: Yeah, to an extent. Um, they would sometimes give you time on all the superior trains and you'd just figure out what to do with it. So, um you know we you, you'd leave guelph junction you'd have a, a raft of train orders telling you what's arrived and uh, you know what's yet to come and you get a, a something telling you what's already arrived and then you would have to determine how fast your train would go from here to here so uh, an example where the your knowledge would come into play is uh, the run time from galt to to oars lake is is so many minutes but uh, it's a lot more minutes if you stop the galt to do some work. So you'd have to contemplate that and whether or not you're going to Orr's Lake or uh, you're gonna to go to Wolverton or wherever. Um, and you had, to, you had to make your mind up about it before you got anywhere near the siding you're going into because of course you had to slow your train down. Did things ever go wrong? <clears throat> always. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say always, but they had the potential to go wrong quite a bit and periodically they would actually go wrong. But back in the day with event recorders, sometimes you could cover it up. Um, I've got a classic example. Uh, Years and years uh, before I started, number 74 was out of Windsor. It was a fourth-class train when I was working, but years before it was a second-class train. So we we were on 903 going from London to Windsor one trip, and we had a train order, uh, meet number, Seventy-four at Ringold, which was which was uh, west of uh, west of Chatham. But anyway, uh, when we went by East End, the order the that meat stayed, but the we got another order. I'm um, just trying. No, pardon me. The other guy had an order, another order leaving Windsor that said nine o three take siding at Windsor. Now he was a fourth class train, so. Uh, he was supposed to take the siding for 903, but he had an order with him that said, number 903 takes siding uh, at Ringgold. We didn't get that order at Chatham because the operator made a mistake. He didn't give it to us, the dispatcher had issued it, and he didn't put it with the orders. So we arrived there, we went down the main track, and uh, 74 shows up, and they, the engines, crews talked to each other, what are you doing here? What, what, why are you, why aren't you in the siding? What do you mean, why are we in the siding? So there was an example of how not getting an order changed uh, what would have been a timetable meet that didn't have any. There was no discussion about the last thing you want to see in single track is a headlight. Oh yeah, but in this case here, I mean, we were protected by the signals. But um, if you're if this is happening out on dark territory, which is track without signals, um, potential's there for a head-on. And so I mean, we did. I mean, over the years, things happened that I'm sure Brad's got examples too. Things that you you misjudged your time and you or we used to say stabbed you stabbed the east bell you stabbed 904 um, you know for a few minutes or whatever he, he was supposed to account for his delay and if you had a good conductor on there he'd fudge the numbers so he didn't have any delay but <laughs> but if it was too much you could get in trouble so I don't know if you have any examples of where train orders uh, didn't quite work out the way they should.
2: <laughs> I don't remember very, any specifics really. I, I do remember one particular trip, uh, similar to a situation like you just mentioned, where there was some heated discussion amongst the two trains about the wrong train had taken the siding. Uh, I can't. Re- unfortunately, I can't remember the specifics, but uh, yeah, it it could get rather complicated because you of course you had the schedules and then you had train orders and then sometimes the train orders were superseded by other train orders and it, it got a that's a that's
1: an that's a good uh, thing uh, segue to something else we, we always there's something in the rule book that's uh, the old rule book that says train orders are in effect until fulfilled superseded or annulled so you could get a train order which tells you something different than an earlier train order told. Just so it, the or, your original order has been superseded. It's been fulfilled if you did what you were supposed to, but annulled means they might annul the schedule of something or annul a meet or, or you know n- any number of things. But So there was another thing you had to take into account when you were contemplating the orders, right? <laughs> did, was it superseded by something else? What do you guys
0: think of this statement? Train orders was thinking man's railroading.
1: Well, it was in in as much as if you look at now, uh, the the thing now is they tell you go here, go there, do this, do that. It's pretty hard to screw it up. And with
0: centralized traffic control, it's pretty much Simon says.
1: Well, it is, and all you you need in centralized traffic control back in the day or now is information on all the slow orders and permission to be out there, whatever that is. Uh, Right now, it's a daily operating bulletin, I think. uh, But years ago, it was a clearance. So you leave Toronto Yard with a clearance, and there might be some slow orders. I I have left there with a clearance with no orders on it, just just uh, you know number nine o three, or whatever. That was that, go to the store, you know, get the bread, and come back. Just and of course follow the
2: light at, at your initial terminal, yeah. checking the train register right to ascertain that all superior trains have arrived or left.
1: Well, that, and that was the conductor's job, and. Uh, I do recall one time at Guelph Junction, you had a, an actual form for that. So you gave, you, you filled out the form and advised the engineer of what trains had arrived and left. Um, and your train orders made up the rest of the information you needed. Well, I didn't fill the form out that day. And the assistant superintendent got on with another guy. And where's your, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it. The, there was a name for the slip. But anyway, where's your so and so slip? well I didn't actually make it register check maybe was it
2: I believe so yeah, yeah. register
1: check so anyway uh, I didn't actually have it we're talking 40 uh, 42 years ago so I think I'd be forgiven for that. We'll for, we'll <laughs> some for of the details we'll, we'll forgive you Ron but anyway you could there was a, you know you could have got into trouble there because you didn't if you didn't check that 50 had arrived let's say maybe he's coming you know you had to get the train register out and look at it and see who was there
0: so I have two questions left uh, for this segment, and I'm going to pose one to Brad, and I'm going to pose one to Ron, but both feel, feel free to both touch on them. So Brad, on the London division, um, back in the day ruled by train orders, if your authority to occupy certain pieces of the railway was by order, what role did the signal system play, and what signal system was it back in, in your time with CP?
2: well from uh, from Guelph Junction westward uh, was ABS ter ABS territory automatic block signal system okay. so the the signals were were actuated by the uh, not set up by a train dispatcher they were just actuated by the train itself so by track circuit the track circuits and uh, the big benefit uh, of that i guess over the total dart what as Ron mentioned dark territory where there's no signals at all was those signals in most cases would relieve you of providing uh, uh, flag protection if you went in emergency at a certain location uh, in, in dark territory you, your tail end brakeman had to go out and flag so back 2000 yards with the flagging kit place torpedoes uh, fusees etc or even if you weren't making normal time uh, the conductor was throwing off uh, either yellow or red fusees from the from the van the caboose we called them vans in the in the L- London division they were referred to as vans
1: yeah protection against following trains was required trains. with ABS the other advantage it had was if a switch was open or broken rail it would tell you yeah it didn't convey any authority to you uh, except that you had to adhere to the signal indications. That that's There's a difference between authority and permission to to proceed, I guess you would say. And it's
2: still the same today with yeah. the uh, with uh, the OCS clearances. The, those ABS signals do not convey any authority. It's the OCS clearance right. that conveys the authority.
1: So uh, yeah, and if you're in dark territory they space the trains by 20 minutes so the first train out that, that would go and then the next train would wait 20 minutes and they would depart and that would allow a bit of a buffer but you could you could leave five minutes apart with ABS as long as you had a signal that gave you enough permission to go at least to the next signal if not further.
0: So in train order days the your your authority to occupy a section of track was by order.
1: Time the, cable and order. And order. Yeah.
0: the. ABS automatic block signals were simply telling you the condition of the track ahead in terms of occupancy So green is a clear block yellow is One clear block. Well, I guess green would be two clear blocks ahead
1: Yeah, we used to call it a clear and then approach and then those names have changed since the change in the rule book
0: And I also understand with ABS on the London division that there were red lights that were absolute where you had to stop and not pass it and is that correct? Without
1: written authorization. And they yeah. would be indicated by an A on the signal.
0: Yeah. And then there were uh, red lights where you could stop and proceed past that signal, yeah. even though it was red. That and was, those were the staggered,
1: well, staggered uh, heads. Yeah. Uh, there were certain signals. The intermediate signals could have a single aspect, a single lens on it, and still be a stop and proceed.
0: It'd still be a stop and proceed. Yeah. So if it didn't have an A yeah. on it, yeah. it was the a only, stop and proceed. The
1: only thing that mitigated that was a G for grade, and that was where uh, uphill... If you had a heavy train, they put G on some of the signals later on, so you didn't have to actually stop. You were just probably crawling anyway.
0: So what would be a reason for stopping and proceeding past a red signal on the London division in train, train
1: order days? Train stopped in the block ahead, uh, in somewhere in that block. Maybe, he went, maybe he's two feet this side of the, the next signal, or maybe he's two feet past that signal you're looking at okay or Go- going
0: the same direction as you are. going obviously. the
1: same direction or it could be a broken rail or a switch open uh, you know somebody forgot to close it or vandals opened it or something
0: so it would be
2: stopped and proceed at a restricted, restricted speed. speed
1: okay yeah, which is
2: half the speed on the I lookout forgot. for a switch not properly lined yeah. prepared to stop short of switch not properly lined on the lookout for broken rail right and restricted speed is defined by
1: it's in the rule book it's uh, not a, a speed permitting you to stop within half the range of vision, not exceeding 15 mile per hour.
0: Okay. So and things like curvature and obstacles, fog, fog, fog was weather, a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Nighttime, like the range yeah. of your headlights would, would rain, would could even slow it down from 50.
1: Yeah. If you enter, if you, and broken rails, you can barely see even in the daytime. So, you know, good okay. luck with that.
0: That was the one question I had was, was uh, the, the, purpose and the function of the signal system. Second is, talk to me, Ron and Brad, about how were train orders handled in dark territory on the branch lines and so on where there were no signals. How did that work with operators, train registers, things like that?
1: Well, it worked the same as on in ABS. It's just that you didn't have the protection of those signals. So uh, you'd still get an order run from here to here to here or work between here and here. And if the were schedules on that section of track, you still had to ascertain whether or not opposing trains that were superior to you had arrived or left or what the situation was. The difference is you didn't have any kind of uh, protection in terms of signals. Even in ABS, if you made a mistake and set out past where you should have been, you would, in theory, you get a light that would stop you before you hit anybody because it'd be a few blocks between you and the opposing train, but in dark territory, there's nothing. So you would, you know, you would rely on the train trainers to tell so you somebody waits or schedules can't the train's canceled or, or I should say annulled. Um, but other than that, they're 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 the same. So you
0: would, I know, around uh, the Woodstock area on the branches, you would have to stop and sign a train register to to show that there was a movement that was on the branch, correct?
1: Right. So for example, Ingersoll always had a t- train register. So if a train had come from. Uh, if you were wondering about number 73, let's say you were going from Tilsenburg uh, back to Ingersoll uh, and headed for Woodstock, the only train that you had to worry about at the time perhaps, depending on the time of day, and this is where your timetable comes into play, let's say 73, which is the train for St. Thomas, you'd check the register and see if he's arrived. If he's arrived, then you can head out if there's nothing else ready to come at you. But, um, if you had nothing, you'd have to get an order somehow. Now, when there's an operator there, they give you an order. But if there's no operator, you'd have to go to the phone and talk to the dispatcher yourself.
0: Did that ever happen? Quite a, or did it happen quite a bit where you, ha- a train crew would actually have to dial up London and talk to the DS?
1: The odd time you'd get a, uh, you'd have to get an order from them. But typically, uh, you could check the register. The times seemed to work pretty well together. So, um, seventy-three come out of uh, Woodstock at midnight. So. Um, I'm just thinking of the jobs on the Tilsenburg, They would, the one job started just before midnight, and you get back to Ingersoll around noon hour. Well, 73 is probably gone. The other, uh, the other thing, uh, but you'd have to determine that. The other thing you have to look at in the train register there. Even if you're okay to go, you got to make sure nobody left just ahead of you. If they did, you got to wait. You don't want to leave five minutes after the guy ahead left, and he stops, and then you run into the back of him, which could happen with 78, for example. He's coming back, so that's uh, I, I don't know if that clarifies it or not but
0: yeah I, I, I think so I mean for for people listening that are interested in this type of, of authority uh, with the train orders it does take a while to get your head wrapped around it and I can just imagine what it must have been like Brad hiring on an 81 as a trainman and you're getting a rule book and a timetable and you're thinking man I just want to go and take pictures of trains now you're doing it
2: is it's pretty overwhelming uh, Luckily, back then, you know, when you're hired on as a trainman, more often than not, uh, sometimes depending on the job, there was uh, definitely a ve- an experienced conductor and sometimes another trainman as well, in addition to the locomotive engineer. So it's not like now where where it's two-man crews and you're qualified as a conductor and they just throw you right out there into the fire and
1: yeah we have I mean we had mentors the thing is that, that I always when I started we always had full crews so you had a conductor when you're at the back and uh, to sort of tell you things explain things there was a period in time where they reduced the crews so all you had at the back was a conductor and no brakeman and you'd be back there as an experienced conductor and the head end brakeman would be a mile and a half away from you and you really only could communicate with them by radio so if you had some work to do at a particular station and this individual was relatively new you'd be on the radio saying oh don't forget the derail or whatever it's
2: yes it was uh, that was depending less... <laughs> who your who your brakeman was on the head end right and and the length of the train and whatnot uh, you couldn't what you could do to help was somewhat limited and depending on the person uh, it could be a little nerve-wracking right. for the conductor because when things go wrong well, you're getting... Yeah, it's it, the family plan. It everyone. is, and we,
1: we, we've actually... We've had the odd individual that was less than stellar in their performance, so I I uh, I remember one time at Galt going east, we had to do a bunch of switching. I told him to pull the train up to uh, into Colleen, like up the main track and bring the engine back through the siding, and I'd help the guy because I didn't... I knew he would just make a mess of it, and, and uh, that dispatcher asked me uh, several years later, why did you do that? And I said, because the head in Brakeman was a completely inept and uh, i thought it was faster even though you wouldn't believe it i thought it was faster than letting him try to do this himself so
0: sounds like railroading was a lot of fun 40 years ago Uh, i did think i did say there was two questions i had one quick one left and then i'm going to let you guys go for today what is the difference between an extra and a work extra because you'll often hear extra 47 44 west or you'll hear the work, that. the work I I'm sure you have the work extra what is the difference between a work extra and just well, an, an extra well an extra has
1: direction and a work extra doesn't have a direction of travel so a work extra would typically their work extras are trains that do work like uh, unloading ballast or plowing snow but but there are situations where we they run trains as work extras because they're doing a lot of back and forth switching or whatever And uh, but the work extra has uh, basically the parameters of his authority are based on time and and location so he would that would train with work extra between one point and another from between the hours of say oh, 0700 and 2100 let's say uh, but the extra west they don't have times they just have run extra from here to there.
0: Brad anything more on on work extra
2: versus extra? No, I think Ron summed it up. Yeah. Cuz you know, I think some well people because I
0: think some people are under the impression that a work extra means a work train it has to be a ballast train? No, or, not necessarily. No. So it has nothing to do with what the train is. It has to do with whether it can reverse or not. That's correct. It, 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 it's and, authority
1: to be on the track.
2: And it may be for, uh, t- depending on the situation, for just for uh, simplicity in the train dispatcher's convenience, it might be the least amount of orders in that particular situation to get that train from point A to point Z and back again. Just uh, as an one, example, one order yeah. might cover it, right? Where, where rather than extra west and then having a, you know. Well, he for example on the Port
1: Burwell sub, if you wanted to, if you had a guy going down there to do some work and you were concerned about the schedule, uh, whether or not he, you'd have to give him something extra, like let's say it was close to the end of the schedule or whatever. One order covered it all. You know, you, you work extra between here and here for, at certain times. Uh, I mean, they'd have to cancel the schedule if that were the case, but. Yeah, you could just, as Brad said, one order and do what you like. Go back and forth once, go back and forth 10 times, just go in one direction once, doesn't matter. I wanted to
0: ask you guys about yard limits uh, as it pertained to train orders. I've seen yard limit signs. I've, heard, I've seen in the timetable it mentioned uh, yard limits. What exactly is meant by yard limits and how does it pertain to train order operations? What's, what's the significance of yard limits?
2: Well, at certain locations, I guess Woodstock, Ontario would be a good, good one on the Galt sub. Uh, there was yard limit signs placed at a certain location to the west of Woodstock and to the east of Woodstock. Uh, and that allowed, uh, say, a, a local uh, a road switcher working in out of Woodstock uh, some flexibility to switch the industries right in the Woodstock area, such as Standard Tube or... Kelsey Hayes, for instance, uh, to, get, to get work done uh, w- around scheduled trains without a whole fist of orders from the train dispatcher. Yeah, you didn't need any orders. Yeah. So like Rule 93 is the yard limit rule, and it says within yard limits, the main track may be used clearing the time of first and second class trains at the next station where time is shown. Protection against third-class, fourth-class, extra trains and engines is not required. So third-class, fourth-class, and extra trains and engines must move within yard limits at restricted speed unless the main track is known to be clear. Uh, known
1: to be clear is, means seen to be clear, basically, if you don't have signals, for
2: example. Right. Yeah.
0: So using Woodstock as a case study uh your abs as you approached woodstock say let's say you were uh, westbound so you're you round the curve at coakley you're on the main track the signal the abs signal at the thames river is going to be green that doesn't necessarily tell the whole tale though does it that the main track is clear through through the yard limit at woodstock is that correct even though i mean only
2: it, uh, in abs territory um uh it says indications permitting trains or engines to proceed do not relieve third-class, fourth-class extra trains and engines from the requirement of moving at restricted speed except that clear signal rule 281 may be accepted as indication that the track is clear but only to the next signal or block end sign. Okay.
1: Uh, You know we should point out that you could back up your whole training yard limits too. So whereas you can't do it when you have a proceed uh, clearance now. So it's not just a light engine. It could be the train itself could back up. We we had an incident with a car one time ago and we backed the train up to where the accident was. We had a short train, an acid train and this car collided with us and we were a mile past them. But we it was all within yard limits, so we were able to back up to the scene of the accident.
0: Otherwise, you would have to have... Oh, you'd uh, have to get a clearance to back up. A clearance and like a train order for that or... Uh, Something. Or, or if you were a work
2: extra, you could do it. Yeah.
1: Okay. But in yard limits, it's just a facilitation rule, I think, for all the So at, would,
2: at Woodstock, I mean, the, the yard limits were used all the time by the various road switchers there, and you just had to be aware of your, your second-class trains.
1: Yeah, so, so as an example, uh, if you were out there working in the daytime, you had 9.04 to worry about, and I don't think there was anything up until 9, 9.42, so you would have a few hours after 9.04 went by, a couple of hours anyway, before you had to be off the track.
0: But if there was a mainline uh, track switch that was open, there would, be a re- there would be relays on those, or if there was a boxcar, if the yard engine was on the main track, your ABS would, would be red.
1: Oh, the ABS would still be uh, involved in that, sure. Yeah. So that fourth class train coming down the hill toward Woodstock would encounter signals that would ensure it stopped before it got anywhere near that car. Excellent. Or open switch or whatever the case was, or he had to be prepared to stop and throw that switch and see it
0: okay okay well that clears that up yeah because i've heard i've heard of uh you know yard limits and seen the signs and so on so wow, that's that's helpful that's great excellent guys this has been fun once again i want to talk to you guys about winter railroading <laughs> and uh working snow plows which i know you guys both love the snow so we'll come back and, and talk about snow plows thanks guys and thank you for listening to the platform station house audio series
1: detector out.